0: Welcome to episode 57 of the 1099 for the week of August 29th, 2016. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Renaudin, and with me today is Game Informer, associate editor and person with an equally bizarre name as me, JV Gwaltney. JV, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Do you really think it's equally bizarre?
0: Okay, I think there's certain (laughs) levels. So if there was going to be like a March Madness tournament for weird names in this industry, I would at least like to, I would like to think that both of us would make like Sweet 16. Yeah, yeah. Josiah, fundamentally, is not a common name. It can be pronounced, like, 800 different ways. Like, a lot of people say, like, I say Renaudin, like, as if I'm some Americanized person, but it really should be, like, Renaudin. And, like, when I work with French people for my full-time job, that's how they'll pronounce it. And it's super cool to hear that way. So if you say, like, Josiah Renaldin, like, then you're going a little bit crazier. But yeah, yours, you sound like
1: if, a Skyrim character.
0: Right? It, it's, 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 great. it's It's cool when you add that little bit of, a like, a flair to it, but if I say, like, Josiah Renaudin, nah, it doesn't sound that fancy. I might not make like a really high level in that tournament, but yours, I think you might actually go final four.
1: Eh, probably not. There, there are some names out there, but it's good to know. It, we, we are in good company with our weird ass names.
0: Yeah, exactly. Both start with J too. So, and yeah. we also have. We just realized right before we start recording, we have the almost the exact same voice oh
1: yeah we do have fun have fun uh trying to figure out
0: who's who's speaking i'm just gonna be there's gonna be some crazy shit like i'll say that's gonna be somehow attributed to you and you got to answer for it and i'm not gonna like i'll be like yep. no he said it he said that terrible thing <laughs> uh so how's how's the full-time life now i mean you're one of those people who i saw all over the place doing freelance work at um just you know about every major site that i was doing it at like what's it like now when you're not you know, pitching all over the place and trying to think of all these new ideas for different sites and making sure your, your style fits what's it like being at game informer and worrying about you know one outlet instead of a dozen
1: it's it's actually it's not as different as you would think it is because we still have to pitch everything like in meetings and whatnot so anytime you see like a feature of mine go up on the website or for example in the last issue i uh, i went and visited the studio that's uh, rebooting system shock. And I went and talked to them cause they're in East Vancouver and I went to their little house and I talked to them and you know, got the history on how this company started as uh, a small time developer whose bread and butter was re-releasing games that had been out of circulation for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to pitch that and I had to, uh, yeah, I had to, I had to pitch that to go do it. So really, um, I don't know. It's, it just doesn't seem as different as I thought it would be when I moved here. Like obviously there, there are major differences. Like I have to go to an office every yeah. day instead of working from home. Uh, and that was pretty weird initially. And I have a cubicle and there's like Wolfenstein stuff on it. And it's <laughs> really nerdy. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's not too different. Uh, I'd say. Like, I'm still pitching and I'm still writing every day. I'm still writing weird stuff about video games. Sometimes my words are good. Sometimes they're bad. Hopefully there's someone around to fix fix them when they're bad. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's not that different.
0: What have you kind of found the pitching process at Game Informer to be like? Because, you know, as a freelancer, you know there's a lot of different standards and levels for what will be accepted at different places uh there's some editors you get to a certain point with where they kind of trust a lot of what you do and you can kind of pitch most things and get away with it but then there's other times where you just get turned down a lot is there is it like a long conversation when you're pitching something do you get the majority of your stuff accepted or is the majority of your stuff shut down
1: uh, the majority of my stuff is accepted uh and pretty much uh, we talk about it in a group because nothing, it's rare that any idea I have gets shut down. It might get heavily modified because we pitch ideas as, as groups usually, uh, except for columns. When I do my column, The Virtual Life, I just talk about it with our features editor to make sure she's cool. Kim Wallace to make sure she's cool with whatever I'm pitching and that the idea works for that column. But for like opinion pieces and sort of listicles, we all meet as a group and we talk about it. We pass the idea back and forth. Uh, until, you know, eventually there's a version where everyone or most people go, yeah, that'll work. I could see people clicking on that and reading that and it being a good read. Um, so it's pretty chill actually. Uh, it's basically like working if you're freelancing, it's basically like working with an editor that you've worked with for like a year or so and you're super comfortable with each other. But imagine that, but with like 10 people in the room and like, those are all that editor. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty relaxed.
0: And this is kind of a hard question to answer, but what do you feel got you the job? And I guess the reason I ask that is because every time one of these, you know, associate editor, any sort of full-time position at Game Informer, IGN, GameSpot, Polygon, anything like that opens up, it's just a flood. There's, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people who have been just kind of chomping at the bit for an opportunity to finally do what maybe they want to do since they were in junior high. It's just, it's suddenly there. It's, it's no more freelance. It's finally like, oh, I get the benefits and... You get that notoriety of being a part of this, you know, big team. What do you think you kind of did before getting to Game Informer career wise that set you up for this, that made you stand out in stacks of resumes?
1: Um, well, I was super fortunate that, uh, now this is advice I give to all freelancers in all fields. Uh, try to get your name out there under like reputable publications. When I say reputable, I don't mean to like, you know, look down on like small blogs or something, but just like publications that people are familiar with. Uh, try to get your name with them as much as possible uh, because A, it'll just look better on resumes and applications. Uh, B, it heightens the chance that someone who might be doing that hiring might see an article of yours one day. Uh, so I think it was partially that that I wrote for Playboy, Vice, Paste, and a couple of other places at a piece on Kill Screen. Uh, but it was also because I think that, uh, and this is something that publications do is, uh, they're also looking to fill niche sort of, uh, niches or spots that they're not covering. Like we just hired Cyril Vasquez and his specialty is fighting games yeah. and sort of esports. And we've needed to fill that for a while. So, you know, not only is he a fantastic writer, he fits the bill, uh, with that specialty. Uh, For me, I think it was sort of cultural writing, like uh, just sort of the essays that I was doing for Paste at the time for Playboy. Uh, They wanted something, I think, I mean, obviously you'd have to talk to the editors, I guess, or the people who hired me who made the decision. But my my assumption is they wanted something uh, that was long form-ish, but not long form. Yeah. You know, someone who could write sort of a a decent essay between 1,000 and 1,500 words And, uh, luckily I think I, I filled that role.
0: It's strange how, when I feel like I started doing freelancing however many years ago, the kind of, the, the mantra or like the philosophy out there was like, make sure you know a little bit of everything, make sure you have kind of all of your bases covered to make yourself marketable, to make sure that if you want to eventually do this full time, you can kind of do a bit of everything. You could do a review of this. You can do a preview of that. You understand how to interview. You understand how to do this, this, and that. But you do mention, uh, with, uh, Cyril Vasquez, who was on this podcast a bit ago, like he's someone who had that focus, who had this, I am this guy, I uh, can cover this field, I can understand fighting games and esports, and that's what got him that position. Do you think it's sometimes more important to break away from the you know, the mile-wide but only an inch-thick philosophy and instead find a certain aspect that you can really hammer home? Uh, uh, Michael Martin is another person who He's now working at Yahoo and is like all into esports and like is like mm-hmm. doing fantastic work there. And I don't know if he would get that if he was one of those like, I need to know everything. Do you think it is more important to kind of just find a focus? Absolutely.
1: Um I think if you're presenting yourself as a Jack of All Trades, that's great, especially if you can do the Jack of All Trades writing. Mm-hmm. Uh lots of people who do present themselves as that unfortunately cannot. Uh, even if they think they can, which is not, you know, I was, I was that person at one time. So I'm not trying to like crap on any freelancers in particular. It's just something you learn. Um, but like, yeah, definitely, especially with esports and the context of esports, because any position that I've seen go up, uh, at like Kotaku or Polygon or, or whatever, it's been esports related because, you know, in the past couple of years, esports have become like a thing thing. Like it's on ESPN, yeah. uh, several freelancers that we both know, right. For ESPN about esports, actually. Mm. Um, you know, it's just, it is definitely better. I think to be specialized, uh, to have something that can, uh, that you can tout is yes, this is my specialty. That's not to say that like, you know, that's the only thing you should write about, but I think it's definitely better to have a specialty and also to be honest, um about what you can't write too yeah Uh, especially if it saves you and your editor a good bit of time like you don't want to waste time uh you know writing something you 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 think maybe you can write turning it into an editor and having them go this is garbage you have no idea what you're talking about um like at the office for example whenever final fantasy comes up I am just immediately like, guys, this is outside of my purview. <laughs> and I go, when I talk to Joe Juba, cause I've played two final fantasy games to completion in my life. So I go and talk to Joe Juba or Kim Wallace or Daniel Tack, like people who adore that series who are really into it uh, for their input. Or, you know, we try to get them to do assignments related to that just because that's their specialty.
0: It's, Definitely a bad idea to try to be something you're not... Inter- especially when it comes to reviews. So, like, if Kevin Van Orde would come up to me and be like, Hey, I got this, this MOBA. How do you feel about reviewing this MOBA? We're like, I played a lot of League of Legends back in the day, but I'm so out of the loop now. I'd be doing it a disservice if I said, like, Oh, I can cover that. Like, when I was coming up, I think I might have I done that because I just wanted that first opportunity and I wanted to be given the chance. But when you don't have any sort of reference point, I do think there's a certain value in reviews you know a madden review from someone who doesn't really like football or madden that much but is interested in playing that game and understanding and i think there's a value in that but if you're being asked to be an expert in something and you're just you know saying i I totally am but you have no idea what you're talking about then you're going to miss these nuances you're going to miss the things where you might say oh this is an innovative feature of this game for the genre and you're totally lying because there's like eight other games that have done it you just haven't played them or have no knowledge of them so i think it's absolutely important to not lie about that kind of stuff. Uh, right, right, right.
1: Right, it's, and it's not even like necessarily malicious lying. Yeah. I think it's more self-deception at okay. some points because you know, you want to believe that you can write about everything and it is it takes a very I think it is very humbling and also to your benefit to step back and say, you know, Maybe not I can't ever write about this, but where I am right now in my life and in my writing career, there's no way I can write about this. Um and I think that's important to realize your limits. And that's not to say you're locked into those limits, but you need to realize them, especially if you ever want to push them.
0: Totally, without a doubt. And I think there is this weird part of when you admit your limits you somehow feel smaller. Like you're like, Oh no, this is something I can't do. But you're right. It's not like you're locked into that. It's not like you can never learn how to You know, correctly interview someone or write, you know, a long feature or a profile or something like that. Like, you can learn those abilities, but, you know, there's no point in pretending to be something you're not. And, uh, something that's really interesting for me about Game Informer, because from my end, GI kind of seems like one of the most prominent outlets with this really strong focus on writing over video. And that's not to say you guys don't have video content. You do with, like, Test Chamber and different things like that, and you do have a podcast. But, is, Have you found writing to be more central to the success and the identity of Game Informer than other major outlets like GameSpot, like IGN and stuff like that? Because even when going back to that, you know, you getting this job and going through the interview process, when I went through interview process similar, all the questions were like, what can you do on camera? What can you do? On a podcast, what can you do in videos? And not a lot of it was focused on the writing. Do you kind of feel like Game Informer still at its core is about the actual writing?
1: Yeah, just by the virtue that, you know, we're we're magazine focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is mostly focused on writing, which is, you know, not to put a damper on our video content, which I think is really good. I think Ben Hansen and uh, Wade Wojcik, who are our video guys, you know, they work hard and they put together great, great stuff. Uh, Especially the G.I. show. I I love being on the G.I. show and I love watching it when I'm not on it. Mm. Uh, We're just saying something because I'm a very vain person. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think we are mostly writing-focused just because we're attached to a magazine. Like, by the virtue of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, is there... Do you feel like the the website hit a point where that you guys realize? I mean, you haven't been working there for that long, but when you got there, was it already this big push toward video, or has that changed the longer you've been there, where people realize like you need to start doing these let's plays and these streams?
1: No, it's it's pretty much been since before I got there. So yeah, that, we haven't really changed. I think our, our video direction since I've been there, at least.
0: What do you think has kept Game Informer relevant for as long as it's been relevant? You. You've just seen recently, there's a lot of sites that are closing down, sites that have been mainstays that are suddenly gone because it's it's a changing industry. Like the way people make money writing about games, it's, it's, we're still kind of figuring it out now, like with Adblocker Mm -hmm. out there and just, there's a lot of interesting revenue streams. What do you think has made Game Informer stay this relevant, especially being a magazine? There's not a lot of, you know, print magazines out there that are this successful.
1: Yeah, we're, yeah, I was kind of, Surprised to learn that, uh, when I got here, we're like actually by circulation, the biggest entertainment magazine in America. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Cause like Costco and the, the AARP are above us and that's it. Um, uh, which is just entertaining to me, but, uh, I don't know. Can I say the word brand on here? Is that oh, you, yeah, only
0: if you say hey, hashtag brand. Hashtag <laughs> brand. Yeah. Hashtag there we
1: go. Content. Uh, game informer has been around a long, long time. Uh, it's, it's been around nearly as long as I've been around. And I think it's, you know, people, uh, there's, there's been an audience that's been there from the beginning and there's also been a growing audience. Um, and it was really, okay. Personal anecdote time. One time back in 2007, uh, cause I think about print and digital media a lot. And I like to think about the story. I, uh, I got a scholarship from USA to a week, uh, all expenses paid, showed us a bunch of cool stuff. And it was basically the entire time they were trying to justify and, uh, you know, convince a new generation that newspapers were going to be around forever, that they were going to be the thing, that the web could not kill them. And there was one lecture we got, I think it was from the managing editor of USA Today at the time, where, uh, and understand this is 2007, so, you know, phones aren't, our our phones aren't, you know, as great uh, as they are now. And he's talking to us about being on an airplane and how great newspapers are. He's like, you can't take your you can't take your website into a bathroom. You can't take your website on a plane. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things like. You know, it was really it was really sad at the time because I realized how wrong he was. Like, uh, you know, there was there was a wave coming. So I think you have to have something other than like people want that old familiar. You know, because that's a lot of the justification you've always had around newspapers in the wake of uh, the Internet. The age of the Internet is people want to read their newspaper over breakfast. They want to go outside. They want to pick up the magazine. But, you know, with new generations rising, that's not always going to be the case. So I think that, uh, you know, we we have a level uh, we have what's the best way to say this without sounding like an asshole uh
0: (laughs) that's what that's that's always running in my head that exact statement before i say anything (laughs) in my life that always is going through my head
1: yeah yeah it's always in the back of my head you know (laughs) i think i think we have a high quality our writing is uh is of a high quality i guess and it's something that readers enjoy um and that they uh you know that they they Resonate or that resonates with them. And you know, we also reach a general audience, too. I think a lot of gaming websites Tap into or their their main focus is like the gamer like the person that plays video games all the time, you know yeah. uh, And we're not necessary. We don't necessarily have that exact same audience like, you know uh, We maybe have people who play games occasionally uh you know or uh they play call of duty they play halo like they value the consoles for these games and then they'll flip through game informer from time to time figuring out okay what other games am i interested in you know trying to justify yeah. their console purchase and they'll see something that looks quirky or maybe they'll see something like Recore they and they're like hey that game looks interesting that reminds me of games that i played as a kid um so i think we're tapping into a different audience too
0: you mentioned the USA Today thing before. Was that something that you had to like apply for and turn in some sort of like essay or something?
1: Yeah, it was like a high school thing. So, so. I
0: was in the finals to get into that for Pennsylvania. <laughs> like When uh. you were mentioning that, I was like, I did that exact same thing. I don't remember the year, but man, that was weird when you brought that up. I'm like, I think I still somehow have this managing editor of USA Today's business card somewhere in my wallet. <laughs> weird. Uh, how different is it? to write for print I mean, we were just talking about uh people love to just kind of open and flip open those game informers i know i have stacks and stack back at my mom's house uh was there an adjustment period from writing for for paste for playboy for vice these places that although they don't really they don't have a stated word count you want to keep it down you don't want to go with like 2500 review word reviews or anything like that but once you actually had to Sort of trim your articles down to make sure they fit into certain dimensions. Was there anything you had to do to change your style or was it just making things shorter?
1: There were slight adjustments to style. Um, I don't know. It is different in how many checks and balances there are. Uh, like with Garrett, who was over at Paste, uh, I'd usually turn something into him and, you know, a RIP playboy. I'm still really upset that that yeah, game is
0: a huge bummer.
1: Yeah, Mike was, I think Mike was, like, the first really hands-on editor, we are going to work through this if it kills you sort of editor I had. Mm-hmm. Um, he would send me back drafts with just tons of notes and stuff, and I'm really grateful for that. But uh, a Game Informer, we, it's important. I think one of the best things is we have a team of editors who are always looking over each other's stuff. Like, obviously, we have, like, a reviews editor like Joe, who oversees all the reviews, but also... Uh, before review goes up, we have other people look over it too. Uh, so, you know, there's just, you are constantly being, your writing is constantly being evaluated, uh, by a team of people who have done this for years. And that was kind of intimidating when I joined, but it's, I got used to it pretty quickly and I think it's been for the better. So I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, there's been like any stylistic changes. I've, made that it made me uncomfortable or anything i think my writing has gotten better yeah uh so yeah
0: it is weird because there's a lot of different ways editors work where i've worked with editors where similar i worked with garrett for a bit and like you do get that kind of like there's a couple edits and then it goes out but then there's the people who um it's a long back and forth and i was mm-hmm. talking to john davison recently who's you know starting up glixel which seems like a really cool idea and one glixel thing that,
1: is so cool
0: it's so cool and one of the things i really like about the direction he's heading is Uh, there's much more of this emphasis, at least what he hopes to do, is to, you know, the people who go through Glixel, whether it's freelance or full-time, come out much better writers because they have this this rolling stone backbone with people who don't write about games but have this really interesting editing experience and this, I mean, experience overall in just writing. Uh, And, you know, he's been all over the place with different, you know, different editors himself and different sites and kind of this idea that, uh, and this is something that Nick Capazzoli and I talk about a lot, the idea of how oh, do you make... Ho. I know, I think I feel like you need to take a drink every time you hear a reference of him in this podcast, but like this idea of how do you improve games writing as a whole, not that any of us come from this stance of, like, we got this shit right, and everyone else sucks, and we're all going to make your reviews better. It's nothing like that, but right. there's a lot of places, there's a lot of people who want to get better, understand they need sort of an editor as guidance, but sometimes... When you're at the level right before, you should be probably getting paid to write. I think most writers should be getting paid. But when you're just working at a small blog, you might not have that editor there to tell you, like, oh, don't do this, or make sure you head in this direction with the review, or please stop using this word over and over and over and over again, and stuff like that. And Glixel is a really cool example of that. It must be cool to have uh, that kind of staff at Game Informer who's been there, done that, and are able to look at your writing in a way that another editor hasn't before and is able to point out the things where it's like, you're a really great writer, but consider doing this. Consider doing that. I had a roommate who um is like a really really good editor and was an English major and he would have that thing where like you would take what I write and look at it and be like, Alright, cut out like thirty percent of this it'll be way better. For at the time I'm like, what? Like what are you talking about? But like then yeah, you need to cut out thirty percent and it looks way better. So uh, the editor situation is very bizarre in games writing, but if you find that person or that team to help you do it, it's kind of amazing the strides you can make in such a short span of time.
1: Oh, absolutely. It is incredible, especially because that's the most important thing, I think, that freelancers who make it get it. Uh, I think it's important to understand two things if you're going to do well as a freelancer is there is a bullshit game you have to play where um, you basically... You know, you need to keep up with all the trends. You need to stay in touch with editors. You need to befriend editors and become comfortable with all the publications and this and that. Uh, And also, you need to be open to criticism. You do not need to be like there are okay times to be precious about your writing if you like feel like okay, this is a point I am making, and if like you remove this, you remove the heart of the essay. But the majority of the time, I found. it's better to be open to what your editors are saying about your writing. Uh, You'll save yourself a lot of grief uh, and you'll become a better writer in the wrong, in the long run. Uh, Because most of the time I think writers who give up after they get like not harsh, but like uh, a lot of uh, correction or edits from a, from an editor is they immediately think, wow, my writing is terrible. Yes. But you know, that's not necessarily it. Edits don't mean, okay, this is garbage. Edits can mean any number of things like, a, there's a better way to say this. B, you need to adjust this for our readership because our readership is, you know, readership is going to vary from site to site. Um, you know, C, uh, you know, we need to shorten this. You're, you know, you're going on too long. You're devoting three sentences to what could be one sentence. Mm. Um, you know, none of that means you are a garbage writer by by any means. But I think lots of newbie freelancers just sort of unfortunately embrace that they sort of internalize that and you know it that's not what it means
0: one of the most important skills you can learn is the the skill of actually being able to take edits uh no matter you know how harsh they are i know there's uh you probably got a bit of this too when you were freelancing and maybe even now where there's people who ask like oh how do i how do i get your job or a job like yours and they'll ask for like hey can you can you look at something i wrote can you give me edits can you give me advice a lot of times i'm like Do you really want me to look at this and give you edits? Because, like, of course I will do it and I like to help people, but they're, you know, I'm, I consider myself a pretty thorough editor. Like, I will go through and say, like, you know, I'll I'll make the red marks everywhere. Uh, and there's definitely been times where after I've edited someone's, like, you know, review or something like that, I don't really hear back. Uh, and it's not, I've never been like, I'm never harsh for the sake of being harsh, but if I'm gonna, you know, give someone the time and, like, really try to help them, I'm gonna be honest with them without, I'm not trying to be an asshole, but I'll still be honest with them and help them to not only understand, like, hey, here's the different direction you should head, but also, like, this is what you can expect when you write a review for a GameSpot or an IGN or a Paste or a Vice or anything like that. This is the sort of feedback you're going to get. And um, when you're at a, a certain time in your writing career where you might be very precious about your writing, you might have kind of a thin skin just for edits that are coming back, but you got to you gotta get a little bit tougher in that way. You gotta understand that, like you said, like most of those edits, it's almost always for the best. There All are right. sometimes where you should fight back, you know, quote unquote fight back when there's this this core of this review that the editor has changed. You're like I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I think you're like maybe there's something we're missing here. Maybe I can explain this better, write more around it or adjust it. But I think this core is important. But the majority of the time. The edits you get, they're for a good reason, and you need someone else. You need a second pair of eyes to actually look at what you're writing and help you realize like you're not making the point you think you're making or you're not supporting it enough or you just spent eight sentences talking about this game's music and zero sentences talking about what it actually plays like, so I have no idea what you're talking about. So I think that's really important to look at. Absolutely. When it comes to previewing games, I mean, one of the things I feel like Game Informer is most known for is you guys get these awesome cover stories. Uh, you get these great, you know, hey, guess what? This game exists or this game that you saw before. Here's kind of an in-depth look at it. Uh, and But pre- game previews in general um, are a weird thing for me. We were talking about this a little bit off air before we started where uh, I remember when I went to E3. You know, you, when you're playing a game for a preview, very often there's like the person who made it or a person of the, the, who is on the publishing team or something like that is kind of over your shoulder and they're almost guiding you through it. And in that way, even with like preview materials and review materials, they're trying to craft a narrative or craft a feeling for you before you really get to form your own opinion um, and I understand why they do that as someone who is now a part of you know making a game. I would love to stand right next to a reviewer and be like here's how you should feel during this here's why this game is great and all that stuff that's not you know they need to independently form their own opinions and I think a lot of preview cover uh, coverage kind of gets skewed because of that message crafting i mean when you guys go to a studio um how do you separate that how do you separate what they're trying to push from what you see and how do you kind of understand like okay this is early this is you know sometimes over a year before this thing's coming out like what can i note about the quality of what i'm seeing and understand like okay this is going to definitely change because it's an early preview or I think this is a fundamental thing that might be bad about the game, and it's worth noting even though there's still a lot of time for them to fix it.
1: I don't know. It was really interesting my first studio trip uh, because I'd always sort of written previews uh, you know, from the stance of, okay, the few times I had written previews before I joined Game Informer because I actually didn't go to any conferences before I got the job. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's really weird. I was like, okay, I really understand how I got this job, but sure, let's do that. <laughs> um, uh, that has changed now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, it was interesting just to see, uh, like the human effort behind games. Uh, because up until that point, we I'd sort of had a taste with that while I watching like sort of documentaries, like indie you know indie game the movie and you see like oh these three or four guys working on something but to like walk into an aa studio and see like countless people sometimes into the hundreds working on a game is just sort of Mm mind-boggling um but i think it's i think it's still sort of when you preview a game at least for me and people have different even people at game informer have uh, different approaches to this i think it's about trying to see the promise of a game what it could be
0: yeah
1: um and being honest with your reader about that saying you know this was my experience with what i what i what i watched or played uh you know this is what i liked it felt good or you know this is how it could play out in interesting ways possibly um and just and just be honest about that i don't necessarily think it's useful uh for a game especially for a game that's like a year out to just be a laundry list of bugs and other bullshit that you you know had to put up with while you were watching a game or playing a game because you know it's a year out it's mm. it's an alpha or whatever uh hopefully they'll have time to iron out those issues so i think it's more important to prompt to focus on the promise of a game what is this game doing that is interesting
0: yeah it's it's definitely weird where um, before I started working for a studio, there's definitely this balance between like this kind of cold-hearted, cold-blooded reviewer person where you're looking at a game as a product, as a work of like, you know, quote-unquote art or whatever, as this creative endeavor, and you don't really connect the people who are involved in making it, the people whose – A lot of times their livelihood is involved in the the success of that game and they're understanding their limitations in terms of budget and stuff like that. And it's a weird balance because I don't think that stuff should affect the review. I I feel like you you have to look at it as like, okay, does this game work? Does it do what it sets out to do? Does it achieve certain things? Uh, But again, there's this balance like you mentioned where there's all these people that are surrounding this and sometimes well over 100 with Assassin's Creed. It's like 8 billion people. Uh, making these games and all that stuff that goes into it. And sometimes you wonder how the hell does a game actually come out to begin with, with all the different machinations involved and all the different people working toward that. So I would assume that when you are going to these studios, like it has to be just kind of eye-opening to see what's all happening there. Do you have, um, was there a specific studio visit that really stuck out for you for a specific game that you're allowed to talk about?
1: I mean, in a, in a very general sort of way, I... I enjoyed my trip to, uh, to the Coalition mm. in Vancouver uh, just because it was such an eye-opening experience. It really was my first time in a studio watching all these people work together on a game and, you know, to hear their philosophy towards design and to hear how different people from different departments were coming at different problems and how they were trying to unify and come together to create, you know, something interesting. I don't know if I can say more beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but it was just that it, it was my first. It, basically, this is it was my first time, so that's what sticks out in my, my mind.
0: <laughs> no, that's probably the same with like conferences too. Where the first time you go to like a big E3 or PAX like that, it's oh kind of this god. like, oh my god. Like I yeah, I went to 2013 E3, the the crazy PS4 price announcement where you know that all that that video came out with the sharing, and it was like this. Wow, so that's
1: the wedding one, right? That's oh, totally. It was the yeah. and it was
0: like my first time. I was like 21 or something like that. It was insane. It was crazy. It was, uh, it you know it changes your perspective on the industry for a bit because you always watch it. You know, through, I'm guessing you're similar to me where you're kind of like watching these conferences when you're growing up and seeing them on TV or on you know sometimes on streams later on and to actually be there and to be a part of it is yeah, it was- crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's wacky. Uh, I remember that conference because that's when I had just started. No, no, I'd been writing about games for about a year, but I hadn't been. No, i have been paid by the Escapist once for a thing I wrote. Okay. But I was still very much in the hobbyist sort of, uh, you know, level of writing, mm-hmm. uh, and my writing was still kind of garbage. <laughs> but uh, I ran a site uh, with. Uh, some other buddies called Culture Mass that was South Carolina centered and I was the game editor for that site and it was not great. But anyway, uh, I left someone else charged because I was going on vacation to Bonnaroo with my ex. And so I was watching the conference unfold on my phone and uh, like, it was just a series of, Oh snap. Because yeah. Noxious person who would still say, Oh snap. And fully mean it <laughs> on the way to, to Tennessee. Uh, and I was just watching like all this thing, all these things happening with uh, Sony just pummeling Microsoft. Because let's let's be real here. However that played out, otherwise like that was just brutal. It
0: was like, the most lopsided E3 I had like in recent memory. Like you can go back to 2006, Giant Enemy Crabs PS3, or 2005, one of those years. But like there was something about just like the seeing what Microsoft did and actually seeing Sony go, all right. And I, I, you know, from what I've heard from the people i talked to, there was definitely some adjusting in the background before Sony happened of like what their message was going to be. And everything was just like exactly what people wanted to hear. Um, right. And a lot of it was not forward thinking. It was a lot of this like, hey, guess what? You could still hand someone your game and they can play it and they can borrow it. And people are fucking going crazy in the audience. And people are like right. almost crying when they see Kingdom Hearts. And it was just this like back-to-back-to-back to back to back, like just – complete pummeling and it was shocking to be a part of. Like it was it was so strange. It was the weirdest E three. That's actually the only E3 I've been to since. Uh, I feel like I peaked. I feel like I might as well just retire from E three at this point. Yeah, the... I my
1: my first E three was actually this past one. Um and it was interesting to smaller people Yeah, where people are talking about, well, this is the last E three <laughs> and yeah. I just I was still so exhausted. Like, that's what I remember about E3. Because uh, my conference was actually GDC, and I love that.
0: But oh, yeah. GDC me. is the one that, like, is still on the list that I haven't gone to, and it feels silly that I haven't. Like, I... I, I It's definitely going to happen in the near future. I really want to go to this year's E3, too, because, like, the studio I'm working for was, like, revealing their game. But, like, it was all so... Not rushed, but, like, indecisive until the very end. But, yeah, it's e E3's even if it it continues to shrink, it's something that I still value. There's something really amazing about being around all of these like-minded people and these people that maybe you've only talked to on Twitter uh, and maybe you looked up to way before you ever got paid to write and then to finally see them. It's this weird, like... They're not celebrities to anyone else, but to people like us, those people are like celebrities. So it's it's a strange experience. Uh, quickly going back to the the preview experience of that Game Informer does. A quick thing. Do the people who, let's say... You go to a studio to go see the new Gears of War. Will they put you on that review assignment, or will they try to separate you from the review because you had that experience going to the studio and seeing the people involved in making it?
1: You know, that is a good question. It's not one that I am. I I I would. You would have to ask our reviews editor. Yeah. Basically, okay. I don't. I honestly don't know the philosophy there.
0: Yeah, uh, it's just it's uh, a thing. L-
1: and I haven't been here long enough to see... Well, that's not true. I saw Doom get reviewed. But, um, you know, it's it's not one where I've been here long enough to see, like, one of our cover games actually get reviewed. Because most of the time they're out, you know, you know, it's like at least six months before they come out. Usually a year. So, to be honest, I don't know. I'm not sure.
0: Okay. I will have to wrangle the Game Informer Reviews Editor and ask him these hard questions. Yeah, you should, um, just email Joe. <laughs> Alright, I'm on it. Uh, how rewarding has the virtual life column been for you? You talked about that a little bit earlier. I mean, like, you, of course, it's always fun to write reviews and write news sometimes, uh, and to do like features and stuff like that, but this is kind of more personal than that. And I think personality based games content that really blends games coverage and someone's specific life experiences has been really successful these days. I mean, you look at, giant bomb where you don't just care about the game they're talking about you care about that person's opinion um you care about you know what they think even if it doesn't always line up with yours and with virtual life it's you know again it's more cultural aspects and more personal than just a news post about how no man's sky got delayed so i mean have you found that to kind of be refreshing to write that stuff at game informer
1: absolutely um it's it's interesting because that was my bread and butter when I was a freelancer. Yeah. Uh, outside of the listicle cool bread and butter, but like when when I would pitch stuff and I would you know I want to write this, it'd usually be Mike or Garrett and they'd say yeah go ahead and write this. Uh, and I'd spend like a couple of days working on an essay, hopefully heartfelt, something that I really believed in and and turn it in. And that was one of the really big reasons I loved Paste was I. I watched Austin Walker come through, and he wrote those sorts of essays. Uh, you know, Jen Frank, who is, like, responsible for me trying my hand at that kind of writing. Yeah. Actually, right before before I took the job at Game Informer, became the assistant editor at Paste, and we got to work together on a couple of pieces. And that was, like, absolutely mind-blowing and fantastic because Jen's a fantastic editor. But it's interesting that I have this space at Game Informer to just write what I actually like. Not to say that like anything else, uh, I I usually like really, really love what I write at Game Informer from reviews to previews and whatever. But like in terms of this is my space, and like I can you know write like very personal uh, stuff. Like the upcoming one is about No Man's Sky. It's probably the most personal one I've written. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to that coming out. Like I I sweated bullets over that one (laughs) for like two or three days. And I gave I actually got extra views on it from the from my fellow editors just to make sure that like it wasn't garbage. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's it's interesting because I just I don't know, it's. It's like a return to form almost like, okay, well, I'm back freelancing again and I'm writing sort of these, you know, things that I consider to be wild and they can exist out there and I'm getting paid for it. It's nice. It's really nice. Like, and there's not really like a, uh, a shelf date on them. I think that's also a nice thing is, uh, like the last one was about state of decay, mm. that, you know, a game that hasn't been out in, in years. Like I think it was like what? 2012, 2013. When yeah. Right
0: around that area. Game.
1: Yeah, before the re-release. So that's just nice being able to go back and write about a game that I find interesting that's you know not necessarily relevant in terms of, oh, you know it's not in the news right now. Um, I got to do the same thing with uh, Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto 4, talking about how they both tackle the American dream. Uh, before the virtual life, this was actually an opinion piece, but... This is just because we hadn't finished branding columns yet. I consider it to be a virtual life piece. I got to write about Manhunt, uh, which I find to be a super interesting game and what it says about humanity. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just it is it feels like at game informer. That is my personal space that I can do whatever the hell I want with within reason. And I love it. I absolutely adore it.
0: I think it's a really cool idea. I I really like it as soon as I saw yeah, all of you guys posting those kind of columns. I'm like, that's, that's a smart way to do that. It's also a smart way just to get uh, kind of an understanding of the different uh, authors there, the different staff there, and beyond the normal writing they do, to get like a more personal side of like, oh, this is what they're into. and This is the style of game and the style of content they're really into. And we're all our own worst critics. But if people haven't really read your stuff in the past, is there any like – specific piece or maybe it's two pieces that you can look at from paste or playboy or vice or whatever that you kind of say like that is representative of who I am as a writer. Cause again, it's hard to do. There's always that time where like anything I write that's six months to a year old, I think is garbage and should be just like lit on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, there are totally times where I look back and I'm like, as a reviewer, my NBA 2K 15 review is kind of who I am. Like that's this type of critic I want to be or uh, I wrote a, this Final Fantasy VIII retrospective for GameSpot. I I would definitely edit a lot of it now. It was two years ago as a different writer, but for me, that's like that's kind of the the level. That's what I'm going for in terms of the content. Like, is there anything you could point to and say like that's that's kind of uh, a good definition of who I am as a writer?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think the best thing I've written, and that's might be because it was the first piece where I finished it. I knew it was good, and I turned it into Garrett. And he said it was good. And then we put it online and it struck a chord with people was probably a piece I wrote about disability for paste, uh, like disability representation in in games. Let's see. What was the name of it? Uh, day in the life, disability and representation in video games. That's one of them. Like, I think that's like when I was really coming into my writing and I finally like understood who I was as a writer and who I wanted to be. And how to try and bridge, uh, you know, that gap. Uh, I also, while Playboy Gaming was around, Mike, who just was letting crazy things happen, let me get away with a column about text adventures called Word Games that I actually, there's like seven or eight uh, entries there. Uh, and I think all those are good because that's just, you know, something I was super interested in. I had his feedback and we were working on stuff. Uh, and I also think the No Man's Sky virtual life that's coming out next Wednesday or will already be out by the time this podcast goes up is one of my better pieces. Uh, so yeah, those
0: three, I think. See, that's a smart plug at the end. You plug them to something you just wrote. Yeah. 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 yeah good yeah. idea. Uh, See, that's just, that's just being a businessman. Uh, it,
1: but, but I, I mean it in earnest. Too. No, like <laughs> totally. I it and I was like, I think this is good. I need to run it past because it, it, it's personal in the same way that the day in the life disability one is it's a personal essay but i feel like i finished it and i looked at it i said this is good but let me run it by other people and they said it was good um so yeah i'm excited to see that one go up i'll actually be in iceland when it goes up so i won't see it go up but yeah oh man
0: for like a feature or on vacation
1: no 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 my girlfriend and i are just going on vacation
0: oh man that's a cool vacation idea Yeah, yeah, i'm
1: excited i'm actually i'm leaving tomorrow night
0: oh geez oh my god i thought wait is pax is, is, pa-
1: PAX, PAX is september 2nd to 5th
0: okay for some reason i thought you were leaving for pax tomorrow iceland is not pax at all no
1: no i mean that would be interesting i would go, PAX to, iceland. I would go to i know PAX
0: i might go iceland. to that too if, if someone could pay for that flight i'm in yeah, uh
1: muffins running around game journalist <laughs> feet yeah absolutely sounds great
0: i think we should cut this part of the podcast because this is a business venture uh <laughs> so, so freelancers don't you know not that often do freelancers really get a chance to be presented on video and on podcasts for major public like freelancers at GameSpot don't get GameSpot you know live show treatment similar with IGN but I mean now you're on Game Informer shows you're on podcasts you're on the different videos like that I did it take you a while to feel comfortable in that space maybe a better question is do you currently feel comfortable in that space
1: yeah absolutely I mean understand that I was a teacher for like two years so getting up in front of like a room of people does not bother me anymore. It does not bother me. Like just talking my mouth off, just talking my mouth off at random strangers, which may not be great. Uh, you know, there, there are good and bad things about that. But the hardest thing I think, um, is figuring out who you are on camera. Uh, because there's definitely everyone at game informer has a personality and they sort of exaggerate that personality on camera, uh, for entertainment purposes. Yeah. Um, And the best thing about being on video was my coworkers helping me figure out, you know, how I could be entertaining on camera, like what I did that was amusing. Uh, cause apparently I have a Joker laugh that, uh, that happens. And it's just uncontrollable. Like if someone, yeah, like during dark souls three, Andrew Reiner, our managing editor, uh, there's an elevator near the final box and he's carrying like 70,000 souls. Uh, And he just accidentally—the elevator had already ascended to the top Mm. level—and so he just accidentally, without hitting the switch, uh, just plunged (laughs) down and lost all his souls. Of course, there's no way to go get them because they're at the bottom of the shaft. Uh, And I just lost it; like I was crying, and like they spent like the next five minutes drawing attention to this. And so, you know, that's something. They always make fun of my name on camera and I sort of go along with it. Like uh, one of the first things former editor Tim Turry said uh, was like when we were doing uh, that terrible test, not a test chamber, a replay of that terrible Obi-Wan game for the Xbox.
0: Oh, oh yeah.
1: It was really bad. I didn't realize how bad it was until we did the replay of it. I was like, oh, Jv Gwaltney, whose name sounds like he is a George Lucas character. (laughs) So it's just stuff like that. And you learn how to. To interact with uh, your coworkers and you know their personalities on camera, uh, like Dan- Daniel Tack, the PC editor, and I, we have a good rhythm that we've established. Uh, we just go back and forth, and you know uh, our our viewers who watch replay like they like certain crew buildups like during mm-hmm. uh, the episodes, and usually uh, it's me, Kyle, Andrew Reiner, and Daniel Tack uh, when I'm on, and like. The, the jokes just come out, and they're one after another, and it's great. It's really, really fun, and it's this sense of community and teamwork. Uh, and I like being part of stuff like that. So it never really was a struggle, I'd say. Uh, it, it just wasn't that big of a deal for me at all. And I would also don't mind being the butt of a joke or being embarrassed or anything. So, you know,
0: that's That might whatever. be the most important part, being able to actually take that and not get, like, offended on things where it's like, no, it's just a joke. Like, we're just, you know, we're goofing around. Just having fun. Yeah, yeah, it
1: was it was interesting because our video producer, Ben Hanson, uh actually like apologized to me a couple of weeks back for something on the podcast. And I was like, Ben, it's it's fine. I know we're goofing around. I know it's fine. He's like, okay, just making sure, because he's a really <laughs> nice guy and he's just checking in, making sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, he's a
1: good host and a good interviewer too.
0: So most important question out of all these questions, and probably the last question what is the goofiest pronunciation of your name that you've heard?
1: Oh god. Uh people have a habit occasionally of sticking an r in there. Oh. I, so I get Jarvie occasionally and I'm just always flabbergasted. <laughs> like just really?
0: Like there's I always those ones where people start adding like, letters like you're like well, yeah. I was called um the other day Jehosaphat Renaud and like didn't Whatever, even that Whatever like, that amazing? Embrace that. I see but there's a moment where I'm like, Maybe I am Joseph Aaron. <laughs> like that's a fucking good one.
1: Uh but yeah, it's like I've had Javi, Javi Javi's understandable because I got that in the South a lot because of Brave's pitcher Javi Lopez and like, that was just that pronunciation was what most people were familiar with. Uh but yeah, Javi and Javi seem to be the most uh the, the ones I get the most. But Jarvey I still get like once a year maybe from a new person and it's fascinating i'm always just shocked like how how did you do this how did you screw this up so badly i'm i'm not even mad i'm just i
0: i usually don't get mad um but there is this uh client that I've worked with in the past for a different job and uh, she in all emails would call me Josh and then in like person and over calls would call me Josh and for some reason that's the one that really like pisses me off because it's like that's just lazy like you yeah. just saw a J and then you like auto filled it out in your head and then you stop so in every single like subsequent email and these chains we'd have about business <laughs> it would be like I would change my signature so it would start out regular and then I would bold my name and my signature just my first name. And then I would bold it and underline. And I would bold, underline, and increase the font. And by the end, it was, like, giant pink Josiah with, like, bold and underline and, like, italicized. And then within, like, the last email, she's like, oh, thanks, Josiah. I'm like, got it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a passive-aggressive war. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so passive-aggressive. It's so <laughs> stupid. If I had the balls to just say, like, by the way, it's Josiah, which I think I did once, and then she forgot, like, literally five minutes later. So maybe this was like my weird game where I'm like, when will she notice? And it was like after it was pretty much like a like a neon sign blinking and just doing crazy stuff. I should have just made like a gif out of it too. Like, it's pass. It was dumb, but. All I'm saying is people need to understand how to pronounce names, which, again, it took me like two hours to figure out yours. Uh, if, if people want to find you on Twitter, social media stuff, otherwise, what's the best place to do it?
1: Uh, on Twitter, it's at hurdy, H-U-R-D-Y, rub numeral four, I-V, uh, and then my emails and my in my Twitter feed if, for some reason, you want to get in contact with me.
0: <laughs> Just in case. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for... We've been trying to set this up for, like, a long time, but it's so hard ever... Yeah, this to is, ever... like,
1: month four or something.
0: I, I found a document, because um, I always, like, kind of write out talking points. And it was, like, dated, like, three or four months ago. And I was like, oh, I forgot I had all these questions already written out for you. So now there's two different documents with your name on them. So you should feel very important. You have, like, a lot of real estate on my computer right now. Ah! <laughs> uh, yes! But, yeah, we'll definitely do this again sometime. I want to hear how Iceland goes. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: I'll, I'll be sure to be posting things about that. Yeah, media, and I'm, I'm sure.
0: Looking forward to uh, reading your next virtual life column, which will be out by the time this goes live. So I am, yeah, looking forward to that, and looking forward to hopefully eventually seeing you at a conference. Like I, I need to go to one. I don't know which one I'm going to go to, but stuff is in the works. Eventually, I'll figure this out. So thanks yeah. again, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully, tune back in for the next episode of the 10.99.